This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. Okay, we are here with Izzy Izagwe. I hope I pronounced that correctly. The so-called one-armed sniper. How are you, Izzy? I'm doing all right, and you are one of the few people who actually did pronounce it correctly, so thank you. Well, I've been practicing all morning, so I'm glad it paid off. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for joining us. I, I think certainly you are a unique guest uh, on this program and probably unique in, in most venues that you find yourself. Um, and we want to discuss all of that and, and your incredible story of perseverance the book that you've recently released, and, and so much more. But take it from the top for us. Izzy, where are you from? What was your background like um, and your upbringing? Sure. So I, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Uh, my parents were not Orthodox when they, when they got married. And my mom kind of wrangled the family into the Chabad world when I was about eight years old. So it was like a foreign concept until then. And uh, something that I was really close to always was stories. I loved reading. I loved books. And the thing that I most connected with once I did kind of further connect with the Jewish world was history, was learning Torah. And what did I learn first, obviously, about the Israelites and the Holocaust once I was a little bit older. And I, I wanted to make sure that something like that could never happen again. So by the time I ended up in Israel on birthright, uh, the IDF felt like the right avenue to fulfill that mission. So now, growing up, it sounds like you had sort of a mixed or conflicted background. Was that a difficult transition for you when your family kind of made that jagged change? Not, not so much becoming religious. It was more about the social aspect of it. Yeah, I, I didn't really fit in in school. Mm -hmm. I went to a Chabad school in, uh, in Florida that I won't specify. Right. Um, it, was, it was a little tough for me, I think, just making friends in that new world. And, and that's something that's kind of tra uh, traveled throughout my life. I've always been the odd man out. I mean, that obviously was the same in the IDF when I was... Uh, the only non-Hebrew speaker in my entire unit. Uh, so it's kind of a theme that followed me. So, so no, I actually really enjoyed uh, being Orthodox at the time. It, it, it worked for me when I was a kid. Um, it was the social aspect that threw me a little bit. Interesting. How did you, how did you contend with that? How did you deal with that at the time? Uh, it was really tough. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I dealt with it particularly well. Uh, my, my memoir, Disarm, does focus quite a bit on, on what it was like struggling with that as a child. Uh, and, and I guess the ultimate way to deal with that was I, I'm, I'm no longer from. I'm not, I'm not a practicing Jew. What, what do you, you think that was largely a function of fallout from the social challenges? Oh, man, that's so layered. There's so many different reasons, I guess, involved with that. Some of that is what happened to, to my father, which, which I also discuss in the book. Uh, he, he, he landed in some trouble with, uh, with the Jewish community in, in New York. Uh, he's a wonderful man, uh, was not treated very well. Uh, but, but probably the main reason that I, that I strayed from that path was actually the injury, was being injured in, in combat and waking up in the hospital 
and, and asking all these different questions to, you know, about God to myself while, while I was sitting there in that pained and, and medicated state, um, and, and realizing that it just wasn't for me. And, and I say that with great respect. My, my family is from, uh, my sisters are from, I go home, I, I respect their traditions. Uh, <laughs> you know, I speak for Chabad all the time. I love, I love going to campuses, uh, across the country. Uh, it's just not a lifestyle that seems to work for me, a thought process that I can relate or connect to. I like to consider myself the outsider who, who protects the values of those within. Is it something that's been evolving for you or has it been kind of consistent now for a while? It's, it's been fairly consistent for a while. It's, I mean, I, I, I was wounded almost, I think it's about 10 years ago now. Wow. Uh, and I have not been, been from since, but uh, I, I, always mind, I always find a way to stay connected in, in some form or fashion. Right. Did you, did you enjoy the learning of, of Judaism it, as you grew older? Because it sounds like early on that was actually something that, that spoke to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's in large part why I ended up becoming a, a storyteller. I mean, I, I moved to Hollywood. I live in California now. And uh, I'm, I'm aspiring to screenwrite and act. So I, I don't think that would have gotten as far as it did without uh, hearing those stories as a child in, in Torah class. Right. It sounds like, though, the predominance of that education, I guess, was when you were a little bit younger. And as you got older, you weren't in those educational environments as much. Yes, that's exactly right. So what inspired you at, you know, I guess a relatively young age to go to the IDF? Did you go immediately after high school? I mean, did you, did you go to Israel a lot as a child? What was the, what about that was calling you? Right. There was not one main impetus. You could even break it down into two simple ones. The first is that I went to Israel when I was 13 uh, for the first time to celebrate my bar mitzvah. My father offered me two options. He said either you could have a big party here in the States or we can go to Israel as a family. And honestly, I chose Israel only because I could tell that he was more excited about it. He seemed really enthusiastic about the idea. And unfortunately, towards the end of that trip, my family was in Jerusalem when the Sabaro bombing happened, that infamous bombing right, 2001. in the heart of Jerusalem. Yeah. So that was like the first time that I realized, okay, all the stuff that I was learning in history class about Jews being in trouble, it's still going on. It's not, in, it's not in the past. So that was the first wake up call. I, I did a very good job of ignoring it. I kind of put it on the back burner and, and went back to, to life in Miami. And that, and then I went on birthright when I was 18 and, and met soldiers and saw that some of them were lone soldiers and were volunteering from other countries and, and that they were my age and, and they were actually making a difference fighting for this cause that I cared about, which is the Jewish people. Sounds like you just went on like kind of a generic birthright trip. Is that, is that what it was? Uh, well, no, unfortunately. I, I, I say unfortunately back in the mindset of, of an 18-year-old, I signed up for birthright not because it was going to Israel, not because I was looking for, for more information on, on what's going on there. I went because I, I thought it would be a great way to meet girls when I was 18. <laughs> right. And to my horror, at least initially when I showed up at the airport, I realized that I signed up for an Orthodox trip by accident. That wasn't even my intention. So, so that went out the window, but hey, it was turns it all, out. Was it all male uh, trip or was, 
It was just uh, no, no. It, it was it, it was it was a mixed trip, but 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 just a totally different vibe. And and it turned out that that they really liked the party too. So it was a blast in the end. I really <laughs> really enjoyed it. Uh, there was just that moment where I was like, oh no, what did I do? Um, and it turned out to be great. So it was on that trip where you really encountered these personalities that you thought you could identify with and sort of aspire to be like. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there was one uh, paratrooper from the Special Forces. His name was Tamir. Uh, he was a lone soldier from Sweden. And he had just finished his training. And every day he would tell me stories about, you know, what it was like to, to jump out of planes and all these things that he was doing. And I, I, by the time the trip ended, I, I couldn't see a way to not do what he was doing uh, without feeling like I wasn't doing my part. And it wasn't intentional. It's not, that's not birthrights. Uh, uh, intention that wasn't Tamir's intention. It was something that was already waiting dormant inside me, and and that's just what it took to wake it up. Well, I was going to ask you because you know there's 40 kids, let's say, on on an average birthright bus. All 40 presumably met this Tamir, and yet, again, presumably not all 40 joined the IDF. And probably I would venture to guess that you were probably the only one. You know, if I if I was just guessing, it's certainly not more than a handful. So. What was it that was waiting within you that was activated by this encounter? Well, first, I would say that that the statistics agree with you. I don't think that there's, uh, I think if you average it out, I doubt more than one person per bus, if even one per bus actually volunteers. What did happen on my bus was that six of the people got married to each other. Oh, my goodness. So that was, that was, pretty, <laughs> that was pretty crazy. I, I don't know if that's a record. Probably not. There's so many trips already. Uh, but that was pretty crazy. What was the, what was the other part of your question? <laughs> I was just like, what about what within you was ripe to be activated by this encounter? Uh, it was it was just something that clicked all all the way back to those those stories I was I was learning as an eight year old when I first learned Torah. You know, it was it started with the Israelites suffering under the whip in Egypt, and that bothered me. And I got past it because I knew that that was ancient history. And then I got older, and we started to learn about the Holocaust. And it bothered me, but I was like, okay, it's still in the past. We're okay now. And, and then thir- 13 was that first wake-up call where I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fooling myself. There are still so many people out there who consider Jewish blood cheap. And, and then 18 is when that all finally clicked together. And I was like, okay, well, now I can do something about it. So did you go right away? I mean, were you in college at the time? What, what else was going on with your life? No, I was, I was not in college. In fact, I called my father from Israel. I stayed, I stayed for another three weeks. I extended with, uh, with a cousin and, and a friend. And I called my father after, after maybe one too many drinks. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was hanging out in Jerusalem and I told him, I, I told him with tears in my eyes that I was volunteering for the IDF. And he did the right thing. He said, you know, come home, we'll talk about it, you know, which is what I did. But I didn't realize for years until I was I was putting together the, the memoir, Disarmed, I didn't realize that I had just crossed the intersection of King George and Biafo, where that terrorist attack had happened, uh, the Sabaro bombing, right when I made that call. Goodness. Like, that's what tied everything together. Yeah. It's very, very poetic. Indeed it is. So you went home, got the clearance, I guess, or or at least kind of made your decision more firmly, and came back as an 18-year-old lone soldier in the IDF, uh, it sounds like. What, what was your path there? Uh, I, I did not end up going as a lone soldier. My family moved to Israel shortly after that. 
I, I wish I could, I could take credit for it. Um, it was, it was part of that trouble I was telling you about with my father. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we weren't even able to afford living in the States anymore. And Israel was something that we had talked about for so long that it just felt like the next viable step. So the whole family ended up in Israel. Uh, they ruined my lone soldier status. I didn't get the double salary or the, or the month off every year. But you did have a place um, to go home. So. <laughs> I, I, I could not be joking more. It was lovely to have them there. And, and they still live in Jerusalem. They're very happy there. Um, yeah, so, so next step was, was joining an Ulpan program on a kibbutz somewhere, uh, not learning any Hebrew somehow. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> that, that takes I, I don't know. <laughs> it does, you know, it really does. And then, and then to do the reverse when I joined was to learn Hebrew so fast. I learned Hebrew in like three months flat because yep. on the kibbutz, if you don't learn, so what? But in the army, uh, you, you got to do push-ups or, or worse, once you finish training, you, you might get shot for not knowing what's going on. Not... Not on purpose, but like something right. might happen because you don't, you can't translate. Run tends to resonate in, in different languages when you're in, out there in the field, I would guess. So, oh, without a doubt. Now, was it clear to you sort of intuitively that you would go into some kind of a combat role? Yeah, that was, that was really the only thing I was willing to do, uh, which I guess leads us uh, in, into the next part of that journey was even after I got injured, I, I, I was only willing to go back in a combat role, and, and fortunately, I succeeded in doing that. Right. So tell me a little bit about what happened to you in the Army. Obviously, you did suffer an injury, and, and what was going on in Israel at the time? What, uh, what were you trained to do, and kind of what was, what was happening there? Yeah, I was, I was a simple infantryman. I was a, I was a sharpshooter. Every unit has a, has a couple sharpshooters. Um, and, and literally the week that we finished, uh, our, our advanced training, uh, war broke out on the Gaza border operation cast lead at the end of the year 2008. So I went from, uh, uh, you know, what you can call being coddled in training where there's no real danger other than not knowing Hebrew and doing pushups, um, to war. My, my unit was sent straight to the border and, after a few weeks of, of being fired upon with, with different types of uh, mortars and rockets, uh, back when the Iron Dome didn't exist, it was still in development. Uh, you know, we had, we had a lot of close calls. Uh, one of those finally uh, landed home, and, and yeah, I lost my, my left arm on the spot. Um, my body kept me conscious, you know, throughout that whole process. I, I stayed awake until I was, you know, induced into sleep when I was in the hospital. And, uh, yeah, I remember all the details. I remember everything that happened. Uh, I, could, I could watch it in my head like a movie. Makes for great book material. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm sure it does. And the reality, though, for you, it's not a book. It's, it's real life. What was that immediate experience like? I, I would imagine just shock. What were you experiencing in that, in that moment? Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess the thing I'm, I was most focused on was trying to get a hold of my mother. Uh, I, I just wanted to let her know that it was okay. I, I definitely assumed that I was going to die. I just didn't want her to think that I suffered. And I, I didn't want her to, to worry or spend time, you know, the rest of her life thinking that I regretted that decision. For whatever reason, that was like the most important thing to me. And crazy enough, I mean, I, mean, I, was, I was holding my, my phone uh, in my hand when that rocket landed a foot away from me. So I, I lost the phone, obviously. It went, it went uh, you know, flying somewhere else. And I couldn't call her. Like, that's all I wanted to do is call her. 
But when we landed at the hospital, when the helicopter landed at Soroka Hospital, uh, when, we, when they were rushing me through the corridor to surgery, an officer handed me a phone. Some, some woman was running beside the, the gurney and she said, hey, we have your mother on the phone. Do you want to talk to her? So I actually got to talk to her, you know, 30, 40 minutes after this injury happened. And uh, I, I was able to calm her down. You know, I could hear my sister screaming in the background. She was crying. There were, there were officers at, at my house kind of trying to explain what was going on, but her Hebrew was terrible, so she couldn't understand them. And I was the one to tell her what happened. I told her that I, that I lost the arm, and I, I asked her. I, said, I, I told her I needed her to be strong for me. I asked her to listen to my voice, to hear that I was okay, that I was going to be okay. And I think that was the last time the first and last time that she cried about what happened to me, she, she really stuck to, to that promise of, of being okay with what happened. Um, yeah, I've, I have a really strong mother. Well, it sounds like a really strong self because, I mean, where did, or from where do you think you summoned that kind of fortitude to be thinking, first of all, about the other about your your family about their concerns and feelings as you're lying in in such a precarious situation and the strength to be able to be calming them down when naturally you should be the one being assuaged by by them uh, i mean i think that just comes down to love love for family wanting to make sure that that they're okay as well and and i've i've learned over the years just just from you know seeing other people that that are close to me suffer in different ways because we all do in some form or fashion i've learned that it's a lot harder for the people around you to watch you suffer than to suffer themselves hmm. right like if you're if you're going through something you decide how you feel about it or how or, or if it's going to get you down or, or how bad it's going to make you feel but other people can't do the same thing they see you suffering and 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 it hurts them I, I just wanted to make sure that they were, yeah, they're powerless to help you. You're, you're, you're the only one who could really make sure that you're okay with what's happening. I, mean, I don't know if okay is the right word, but that you're going to come out uh, with the right mindset. Um, yeah. I mean, so it's just a close family and, and uh, I mean, she's, she's a great example to tie into what we were talking about earlier of somebody who, who still has a very strong belief. Uh, you know, she has a lot of Amuna. And uh, even though I can't see the world the same way that she does, I, I respect her version of it, if that right. makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so I, I would imagine that this is, despite your incredible sort of uh, optimism and strength in, in encouraging others, it must have been a, a tremendous shift for you to begin living life, you know, in such a different way uh, or with such, you know, a different body, for lack of a better way to describe it and, and I don't know how to describe it sensitively but what was that experience like for you I've read about you know people who have, who have lost limbs and just kind of the sense of loss and the sense of adjustment that that goes on mentally beyond whatever physical rehabilitation takes place what was that like for you yeah I mean that that difficulty comes in many forms when you wake up after an injury like that there's there's the physical pain uh, there's phantom pain, which, which is something I, I still suffer from, you know, it's psychological. There's so many different facets of, of things being different than they were before an injury that you have to deal with. And, and I, re I really like the way 
that I decided to give those pains a voice in the memoir and disarm the phantom uh, as an actual character. Like he's, he's the, uh, we, we can call him, I've, I've never described him that way, but it makes sense to, he's like the Yater Hara, <laughs> you know, that voice in my head who's, who's not very nice to me and tries to get me down uh, and, and sometimes causes me very, very physical pain that I feel. Um, so yeah, no, of course it wasn't easy waking up after something like that and, and things were very different. Uh, and, and it's not like I woke up and, and, uh, like some kind of like superhero and was like, okay, well let's move on. No, it was very difficult. And there were a lot of dark days, uh, a lot of dark days and nights of, of pain and, and ill thoughts, but it's, it as long as the end result was getting where I got to, which was, which was coming out the other side into the light, then I, I think that's fine. I, I don't think that's what matters. How long do you think it took you till you did kind of start to get your feet back under you and start to really come to terms, I guess, would acceptance be the right adjective? You tell me, but how long did that process take and what went into it? Yeah, I guess I don't even really know how, how to answer that as far as the time frame, like when the acceptance came, because there are different stages of acceptance. I accepted what happened right away. I understood it even before I was put to sleep for surgery, that my arm is gone. I, I grabbed the doctor by his... Uh, uniform and I was like hey are you going to put this back on and he told me even then he's like no there's no way to do that your your elbow is gone it, it exploded in the in the blast and without that joint we can't reattach it so so I already knew the technical aspects of why I would never be the same right after the injury so I accepted that before being put to sleep I accepted that before I, I spoke to my mother on the phone but that's only one form of acceptance yeah like accepting yourself as as a whole after something like that happens, I'm still not sure I've done that all the way. I'm sure, I'm sure I still have a chip on my shoulder in, in, uh, in some areas of life because of what happened. But, but that's what makes me human. It's, it's what makes all of us human. It's, it's the fact that we fight through that. The fact that we still wake up every morning and, and uh, that some of those mornings we have a smile on our face and we, we manage to be productive and, and live happily and, accomplish our goals i think i think that's where the acceptance lies it's not like an ultimate okay now i've accepted i think it's a daily battle it's a dragon that we have to slay every day i mean it sounds like there was a spiritual casualty there as well in some sense and you know perhaps that was one of the things that was a struggle as a result of this i, I don't mind uh, I, I don't mind elaborating on that i mean sorry to interrupt i, oh, I yeah i i wouldn't even i, I wouldn't even call it a casualty. Uh, I, I, I named that subchapter arm wrestling with God. That was when I woke up in the hospital and, and kind of had this battle with uh, Phantom, you know, the Yatsuhara, my myself, and, and just trying to figure out what God means and, and, and how I should feel about him or if I should feel about him. And it was, it was interesting that the conclusion I, I came to, and I, I'm sure that a lot of the people who listen to a podcast like this would disagree, which, which I obviously respect. But for me in that time, I didn't want to lean upon the idea of everything happens for a reason. God, God has his reasons. It could have been worse. There, there's so many like cliche responses that people were throwing at me. Right. And I, I didn't want to lean on that. I, I saw it as a weakness. Like it's one thing if, if that faith, was there strong beforehand, like somebody like my mother, who, who really is just, it's there, it's deep. 
uh, in that case, fine, it works. You're not using it as a crutch. But I knew, I knew in that moment when I was lying there in that hospital bed, that if I used one of those platitudes, if I comforted myself by saying something like that, by, by giving it to God, the reason that this happened, then I, I wouldn't ever really be happy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't overcome that struggle. And instead of trying to figure out if there's a God or why God would do this, I decided that I would move forward under the assumption that he wasn't there, which is a very lonely place to be. I, I, I don't recommend it. Uh, it's, it's a lonely place to be, but what did it lead to? It led to a backbone because I told myself, okay, this didn't happen for a reason. Therefore, I have to create my own reason. What can I do in this situation? I just, I woke up in bed minus an arm after such an injury. What can I do? What can I make out of this? Where afterward I could say, now there's a reason. Now it makes sense. And, and the, the conclusion that I came to was I have to go back. Hmm. I have to go back to combat. I have to undo that damage. I have to do, I have to, I have to fight so hard to make it back that it's as if I erased what happened. So it was a lack of faith that allowed faith in self and what pushed me towards what I consider a success, uh, you know, continuing life exactly where I left off, back in uniform, back on the front line. You know, if I, um, if I could editorialize for a moment because sort of throwing on my, my rabbi hat, which I don't usually do on, on a podcast, but, you know, I, just hearing the story, I'm not sure, at least from my, you know, from where I stand, that the cliche answers are the only ones that are compatible with religious faith. Um, you know, I, I wonder if there's a certain realism, uh, brutal honesty in your perspective on things that also can be faith driven. And I don't just mean, you know, personal faith, but spiritual in a way in that you're saying, I don't really know what this is because of or for. And I'm just going to get up and do the next right thing. And maybe eventually I will discover that. Um, and to me, that's a, a type of faith as well. And the very kind of impulse to propel forward to me is an, an inherently spiritual one. I don't know if you would, would agree or, or disagree with that analysis, but that's kind of how I filter your, your story. Well, I, I would say that that's an absolutely viable way to look at it and, and that I might have felt less lonely on that journey in the spiritual sense if I editorialized it in that fashion. And, and by the way, I should, I should add that if I am allowed to bring Phantom into this uh, conversation, the, the Yetzer Hara hat, then you're, you're definitely allowed to bring your, your rabbi hat in, into the arena. So no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, it's not the way I looked at it at the time, but it easily could have been. You know, it's, it's a, a strand or two away in the DNA from that. Yeah. So again, you were emerged from this with this sense of tremendous drive and purpose and mission. And I would imagine that the distance between that determination and the actual expression of those goals was probably a, a pretty, a pretty vast one. Um, how did you begin to bridge the two and actually concretely move forward? It, it happened from the first time that I was lucid. The, the first time that my parents were standing over me, uh, over my hospital bed, I, I told them that I wanted to go back to combat. And, and this is where that 
family, that love comes together because my father is standing on one side of the bed and he bursts into tears. And he says, how could you, how could you even joke about something like that? I thought I was joking. He's like, of course you're not going back. Right. Haven't, haven't you lost enough? Why would, why would you even say something like that? And my mother who's standing on the other side of the bed, I, to this day, I still, I can't believe it. She was like, no, this is what his heart is telling him. Wow. And we have to stand behind him. And, and they were literally arguing over, over the bed. I was looking at them back and forth. And what, what did I see there? I didn't see a father who, who didn't want me to go back, who was, who was afraid for his, his son. I didn't see a mother who had that insane strength that she would even consider it. I was reading between the lines. What I saw there is that they were both talking about it as if it was possible. They both believed that if I set my mind to it, that I would make it back to combat, even though it, it hadn't been done before. And that gave me such tremendous strength. It gave me, it's not, it's not about strength on the obstacle course or strength when, it, you know, when I finally made it back. It gave me a strength in an area that I still kind of struggle with, which is like the social aspect of it, right? Because how does one make it back into combat after an injury when you've been honorably discharged, when you wake up and your papers are there on the bed? The only way back is through connections, is, is through politicians or officers or generals. And Israel is a very small country. When, when, when a, an operation of that scale leads to 70 soldiers sitting in the same rehabilitation ward, every single politician and, and general comes to visit. They all came. I mean, Gabi Ashkenazi all the way down came from, from the chief of staff side. Right. And every single one of them, the first thing that I would ask them when they walked in the room is, will you help me go back? That is my goal. I want to go back to combat. And, and what was their that, response? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, it was it was very it was variations of of you're crazy or move on with your life or they thought you were on too you much know, morphine. They were being nice. <laughs> I well, first of all, I definitely was on too much morphine, so, so they'd be right about that. Um, but they answered correctly. They said no, move on with your life. And I kept asking anyways. I had that strength from my parents. That first response that I got fueled me all the way through to the one yes that I got, and all I needed was one yes. I got a visit from the General of Southern Command. It's one of the highest ranking positions in the IDF. Uh, the general, his name is Yoav Galant. Uh, he was in charge of that whole operation. Gaza falls under his jurisdiction. And unlike any of his colleagues, when I asked him if I can go back, he said, yes. He said, if it makes sense, you and I are going to make it happen together. And it was a long, brutal, uphill battle that took, I don't know, a year, a year and a half, somewhere, somewhere between the two, but, but, uh, he was a man of his word. And, and once I proved my, my value and my worth, I, I did, I made it back. Did you think he was just humoring you at the time to kind of help you along? I don't think so. I think it would have been the right thing to think, but I, I think I just needed to cling to whatever hope that I could at the time. I just needed something to, to hang on to that said, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. Uh, so it didn't matter. It didn't matter, I guess, if it was genuine at the time. I just needed to hear a yes from somebody. Right. So what did you actually have to do to get back into that position? Uh, well, it took, I mean, on my side, it took many months of uh, physical recovery, of, of stopping to take medication against doctor's orders for the phantom pain, uh, you know, psychologically preparing myself when I finally felt ready. And when I made the call to the general, uh, I was back in uniform, you know, within, within the span of a couple of months. 
And he set it up so that I retook all of the tests that a combat soldier normally has about nine months to finish. I had to do them all in a month. So I had to relearn how to shoot, load, and ungem an assault rifle, how to do obstacle courses and, and heavy combat gear that include jumping over a seven-foot wall, climbing rope, you know, crawling. And, and it was obviously a very difficult month, but, but by the time uh, I, I hit day 30, I had passed all of those tests, and that was enough. How did you do these things just physically? I mean, I'm just picturing this, the most rudimentary of tasks as a sharpshooter or in any combat role, just unloading and loading a gun. How do you, how did you even physically go about doing that? Did you have to identify many different accommodations? What was that process? Yeah. I mean, it was a combination of, of brute force and finding accommodations. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, even presently as a civilian, anytime I, I reach a new obstacle, something that I hadn't tried to do before, it takes me one or two times to figure out my method. And then, and then it goes smooth as silk. Like I don't have a problem anymore. And, and it was the same back then. I would reach a new obstacle as a civilian or a soldier, and it would be tough in the beginning, uh, but I'd figure it out. And, and I, I mean, my, one, of the, one of the favorite stories that I like to tell uh, to kind of prove that when, when people ask me, what you ask me is I tell them about my obstacle course time. The first time, when, when, you, when you're in boot camp, you have to do that obstacle course that I, that I mentioned where you're wearing that heavy gear, you're jumping over walls, you're climbing rope, there's right. balancing beams, there's all these different things that you have to do. And the time limit, if I remember correctly, is about 10 and a half minutes, right? Okay. There's, a, there's, a long, there's, a run, there's a run before it, a run after it, and then this whole obstacle course in the middle. The goal is to make sure that you're exhausted. <laughs> the first time that I took that test as a two-armed rookie, I failed it by two seconds. And the, I, I remember being kicked awake the next morning by my officer. He, you know, he gave me a tap with his boot. He's like, hey, you got to do it again. And I was like, what? I just failed yesterday. I'm more tired now. Like, I'm sore from it. You want me to do it again? He was right. Obviously, the incentive was knowing that if I failed again, I would have to do it again the next morning. So I, I, I passed by two seconds. So, so let's say 10.28. That was 10.28. I passed by two seconds as a two-armed soldier. The first time that I tried to do it, minus an arm, when I went back to combat, my record was eight and a half minutes. So I dropped a full two minutes off my time. Wow. And my record, my all-time record is about seven and a half minutes when I was in command school. So the answer is, yeah, I mean, I figured it out. It's, 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 it's a mental thing. So we have to decide, you know, the strength is in the mind. So were you able to literally get back to the exact same position exact same role as a sharpshooter? I would say more so. I still serve in the reserves. I go back to Israel once a year to join a unit now that's in the special forces. So I've, I've upgraded. I'm no longer in the infantry. Incredible. What's been the reception that you've gotten? I mean, I would imagine many people are just awestruck um, and filled with adulation. Has it been all positive or have you encountered any resistance or skepticism? Uh, I, I guess in the beginning, you know, for that first hour or two, when I'd show up to a new position or a new unit, people would be like, what's going on? But it's, I mean, it's as simple as I was there, I was doing it. Like there was, there was no question once people saw me in action. So that, that was never an issue. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see 
it, it just happened again uh, about a month ago. I was uh, someone randomly posted on like a Hebrew Facebook page uh, a picture of me and, and talking about what I did. It happens like once or twice a year, and then the photo goes fairly viral. It gets like right. I don't know anywhere between twenty thousand to a hundred thousand shares in Israel. And it's interesting to see, and I'll read the comments. I'm one of those people who, who, uh, who, who goes on in there to see what people are saying. See, there's, there's two types and, of people. There's those that read the comments and those that and those, pretend yeah. they don't read the comments. Come on. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. So I definitely read the comments. And uh, it's interesting to see how, how once in a while there'll be somebody who said like a, somebody who was a soldier who'd say, Oh, I'd never want to be beside him in, in a foxhole. I'd never trust right. him. It would be like a date. No, no. Which is totally understandable. Like that's, it's the right thing to say, I guess under that, you don't have to say it, but it's the right thing to think. And it's always interesting to see how people who I, who I'm not really close to, but just like somebody who I passed through, like through my service, somebody who was a soldier uh, in the unit next to me or whatever, somebody who I know in a small way, always angrily comes to my defense. People whose names I haven't thought of for like a long time will have also read through the comments when they see it and right. go, hey, no, I serve with that guy. You know, like he, he, he was, I trust him with my life, you know, or something to that effect. So no, I mean, once, once I was on the ground, once I was doing my job, it was never something that came into question. I, I earned my spot on, on the field again. But yeah, people are always going to question. It's, yeah. it's a crazy thought to be a one-armed combat soldier. I, I get it. And what about within society at large, especially in the Hollywood community, which can not always be the, uh, the deepest of places in terms of the, the way that people look at, at others? Well, I, I think there's almost two different questions there. I mean, as far as it like being a Hollywood story, I mean, it's, it's a perfect fit. Right. In fact, I right. hope somebody makes. I hope I hope somebody uh, turns turns the book into a screenplay and and makes it into a movie. I think I think it has a a place in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I mean the issue with with Hollywood obviously comes with a lot of people not having a love for Israel. So on that side of things, uh, it's not my struggle. It's anyone who served or you know positions themselves as pro-Israel that has an issue here potentially. Right. You know, you, you are now in Hollywood, as you mentioned. What are your goals? I mean, are you writing around themes that you've personally experienced or are you just a screenwriter like any other? Um, yeah, I'm trying to be a screenwriter. I, I mean, I wouldn't say like any other. I think the, the point is to be unique, but I'm, I'm just trying to be a screenwriter. There's no, I, I'm, I'm trying to write and perform in things that I enjoy. That's, that's what it comes down to. You got you to gotta do stuff that you enjoy and, and then hope that there's an audience who agrees with you. Because if you're if you're doing it for the audience, it's almost uh, automatically uh, a recipe for failure. Do you find yourself more on the acting side or more on the screenwriting side? And in the, within the acting side of things, are you pigeonholed, you know, for lack of a better term, by the physical realities? Without a doubt, I I, I would say that I'm I'm very much uh, a part of both those worlds, or or at least striving to be. Um, but it is, it is hard. Yeah. It's hard when you're, when you're missing an arm to, to land a regular role, like you, you end up aiming just for roles that require that disability. Uh, so there's like a glass ceiling there. Um, but it, it helps. And I think this is true of anyone trying to make their way in Hollywood. Now it helps if you're creating your own content, which is what I'm doing. So I moved here, uh, roughly a year ago. 
and I've I've already written and starred in my first short film that that's going to go to festival soon. Awesome! What's uh, it about? Very very. Oh, it's a strange one. I, I mean, that's <laughs> that's the the kindest way to put it. Uh, uh, short story short, it's it's basically this one armed guy who, uh, who who did some bad things, and you know he he drank when he shouldn't have, and, and drove when he shouldn't have, and ended up in an accident that hurt some people, and he lost his arm. And uh, we end up with him. The story starts, you know, six or seven months after that happens. And at his lowest point in the story, he decides to dig up his arm out of a backyard grave mm. and reattach it with scotch tape and just pretend like life is OK and everything is fine. And uh, it's, so it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's intentionally ridiculous. And yeah, it's called Pull Yourself Together. It's, but it's uh, interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really ex- it seems to kind of play on the theme of denial which ironically is one that you did not seem to suffer from, at least in, you know, in the most acute form, because as you described, you were very much present and clear about what was happening to you in the moment and not under delusions of you know, returning to your previous constitution. No, I, I, I agree. Uh, and in fact, that's what's enjoyable, I think, most often as an actor is to take on roles that are so far removed from who you are. Yeah. I mean, this, this character that, that I created is very pathetic and uh, very weak and, and very much in denial. So, so yeah, he's, he's not exactly, he, he chose a different path than I did. Interesting. He uses scotch tape differently than I do. And I suppose um, writing these characters gives you a foil to express some of your own unexpressed pathways or emotions. I mean, I don't, I don't focus too much on that, but I imagine, I imagine that's true for anyone who writes or, or expresses, expresses themselves creatively. Um, I, I, would, I would say it's silly to not agree with that statement. I haven't like focused on the psychological results of that or, or you know, how cathartic it is. I just write what I enjoy and, and I'm assuming it's somehow tied to my own experience, whether by staying really close to it or, or going in the opposite direction. So that was that was definitely an, an experience shooting that film, and and uh, I, I've taken the leap into directing. I'm directing another film that I wrote uh, in a month from now. So I'm I'm trying to get that ball rolling for sure. That's awesome. Do you have you know agent and the whole kind of apparatus over there? I, I have an acting agent. Uh, it's it's a little early for a screenwriting agent. Um, it, it, it often takes years to kind of build up the, the career here and that resume, uh, as, as far as I can tell. Um, but I'm here to stay, so I'm not, I'm not worried about that. This, this is the life that I chose. I love it. I love it out here. What are you doing with, with the rest of your time? Are you, are you taking on other jobs to make end, ends meet? <laughs> no, uh, that, that, waiting, waiting tables while I'm sure I can figure it out. doesn't feel like the right uh, <laughs> role. Oh, let's call it a role for, for, for a one-armed man. Um, no, I mean, fortunately, I still have the, the speaking. I'm a motivational speaker. I, I, I travel the country uh, whenever I'm called to, to spread the light. Incredible. And what kind of venues have you spoken in? I, I mean, it really runs the gamut. I've, I've done everything from middle school to high school to university to corporate events. I've spoken for Apple and Nike and medical conglomerates and everything in between, synagogues, churches. Yeah, any, anyone who's looking for motivation or, or who isn't attempting to bash Israel, 
uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to be there. And actually, sometimes even when they are, you know, if I could be that that opposing voice, sure, uh, the necessary battle as well. Tell us a little bit about the book. What was its genesis? And and of course, uh, where can people get it? Yeah, it's it's called Disarmed: Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, yeah, the the genesis. I mean, I. I, I typed the first word something like eight years ago, so it, it definitely took time to uh, to get the project finished. But I'm I'm really proud of the result. You know, most of the military memoirs that I read, and I'm a big fan of all of them, all of the famous, uh, you know, the Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, American Sniper, Where Men Win Glory. I love those books, but it's so hard for me to relate to the protagonist. I read it and I go, of course that guy crawled three kilometers through a forest after being shot seven times he's a superhero <laughs> like i get that and they're all like that they're all superhuman people and and because of that i can't relate to them as a reader i i don't i don't actually gain inspiration because they're not we're just not on the same level and my my book is pretty much the exact opposite you you, you know i i introduce my readers to this nerdy jew from miami uh <laughs> you know, who, who definitely has self-confidence issues. And he goes on this crazy journey where he manages to become the only one-armed special forces sharpshooter in the world. And I've, I've noticed, I know this because people already come to me, you know, readers will say, if you are able to do all of that, then I can accomplish anything. And that's my goal. I wanted to write a book that actually inspires people that they can relate to, that they can know they are better than, and therefore accomplish anything. And as far as where you can get it, anywhere, anywhere books are sold, Amazon, uh, Goodreads, you know, Barnes and Nobles, whatever, whatever your poison is as far as getting your literature. You joked uh, a few minutes ago about converting this into a, a screenplay, but the truth is it really does contain all those elements of sort of a classic Hollywood feature. Have there been any overtures in that regard? What, where does that stand, if anywhere? I, I took a few meetings early on. Uh, people that were interested in, in the book before it came out, they, they wanted to take a look. It hasn't gone anywhere yet, but uh, I'm hopeful. Maybe maybe one of your Hollywood Jewish Hollywood listeners will, will be interested in taking up that, uh, that torch. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll have to try to make some connections. And just finally, Izzy, what do you think the future holds in terms of you know, the career there? Are you, you know, it sounds like you're really focused on the, on the screenwriting and just continuing to make shorts and kind of build your portfolio and work your way up the ladder. Is that kind of a, a standard trajectory over there? That's, I mean, there is no standard trajectory. There's literally no today with the way content is, is distributed. There's no one way to succeed. Every Avenue is viable. So this is just the one that I've chosen. I decided that I didn't want to wait for the industry to invite me in, which can take forever if at all. Uh, I wanted to just start working. I wanted to create my own work. So that's what I'm doing. Um, and who knows where the, where the industry or where the future will take me. Um, I'm, I'm definitely open to, to whatever comes my way. Well, I think it's a, a very apt metaphor when you say that every avenue is open uh, because clearly you are someone who has demonstrated that despite the longest of odds, every avenue truly can be open with the right level of determination and uh, attitude. And uh, it's really an incredible inspiration to hear that story. I hope people will, will read the story and, and pick up your book and uh, 
really an honor to have you on our program. Izzy Zagwe, thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure, Rabbi Ari. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.